I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016. Coming up, Front Range High School students Lindsay Welch and Tycho Mera Evans, who are rising to the national stage in STEM research, share their social impact engineering research. They're part of a University of Colorado Boulder program. It's been rewarding working on tactile graphics for children with visual impairments. As a high school student, I'm joining the environmental revolution by helping reduce biofuel waste. And marine ecologist Mara Hart will share some deep secrets of the sex lives of marine creatures and why healthy oceans depend on their healthy sex. It's all in her new book, Sex in the Sea. Ultimately, sex is the heart of sustainability, and nowhere are things more wet and wild than in the sea. Let's start with a look at some of the recent news in science. Many people find that the seasons or their sleep cycle are not living up with the daylight rhythm makes them depressed, related to the seasonal affective disorder condition. Researchers at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute have found evidence that these mood problems could have a genetic explanation due to a faulty version of PER3, which is a circadian clock gene. The researchers looked at behavior in a family that carried all the faulty gene and also studied mice that either had defective versions of PER3 or lacked it completely. When exposed to 12-hour days, these mice behaved normally. But when exposed to limited daylight, such as experienced during winter months, the mice exhibited depression-like symptoms, including giving up more quickly in a difficult situation, general apathy, and participating less in pleasurable activities. The researchers point out that although it is known there is some kind of connection between sleep, daylight, and depression, nobody has been able to find a biological link. Perhaps PER3 is a connection between pathways related to mood and the biological clock. Exactly how the gene bridges these pathways remains uncertain, but it may help control how mice and humans respond to different amounts of light as the seasons change. The research was published yesterday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. There's a new kid in the field of molecular biology. It's an exciting and somewhat controversial method of gene editing. Yes, actually cutting and pasting into and out of genes. The technique is called CRISPR. It's already been widely used in genetic engineering, screening, and treatment of genetic and infectious diseases, and it could be used to repair the faulty PER3 gene, which was described in the previous headline. CRISPR relies on a protein called Cas as a molecular pair of scissors for cutting DNA. Cas uses an RNA molecule that lines up with the spot in the DNA to be cut as a guide to its destination. The first step in the cutting reaction occurs when the RNA guide pairs with one strand of the double-stranded DNA molecule and thereby bumps aside the other strand. That makes the double helix unwind. The exact role of the RNA-DNA pair in the cutting has been not really known, but a group of scientists from the University of California at Berkeley have made much headway. They used X-ray crystallography to picture the shape of DNA before and after binding the RNA guide. The research discovered that RNA binding bends the DNA. This, in turn, stretches the attached Cas protein so that the exact side of the protein that does the cutting ends up positioned next to the specific location in the DNA to be cut. And, voila, the scissors cut on target. The new study was published last week in the journal Science. And here's a sweet one, literally, on the science calendar. This Saturday, February 27th, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science will host a Sweet Night at the Museum. 
It's a chance to explore an exhibition on chocolate, how it has evolved over time. And you can enjoy the exhibition while hanging out with friends and tasting different sweets, including chocolate, of course. This one is for high school students only. Think date night, parents. The event runs from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. For more info, go to www.dmns.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. Developing polymers to reduce waste from biodiesel production. Using 3D printing to design ocean textures, such as fish gills and waves, that blind students can use in textbooks to better understand nature. These are the kind of lofty and vexing research challenges of high-level research scientists. Well, in this case, they're also being tackled by a group of high-achieving high school students on Colorado's Front Range. Several students have been working with mentors in University of Colorado labs. The program is devoted to attracting underrepresented and disadvantaged students to pursue academics and careers in STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The students will get to attend and give a research presentation at a research conference in Washington, D.C. later this week. Two of them... Lindsay Welch and Tycho Mara Evans have joined us in the studio along with Dr. Catherine Penscover. She directs the high school student internships through CU's Science Discovery Program. Lindsay and Tycho, welcome to the show, and I hope it's a worthy hooky from class this morning. <laughs> yeah. And Catherine, welcome and thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us. Catherine, let's start with you. Since you're at the university, mm -hmm. briefly, how is it that these students are working at labs at CU, and what is the connection with CU Science Discovery? So this is a um, this program is sponsored by a subgrant through an NSF-sponsored Emerging Frontiers in Research grant in photo origami, and it provides high school students this opportunity to come to campus and do research in the labs. Okay, so you said photo origami. Mm -hmm. uh, can you explain what is photo origami? Yeah, photo origami is an emerging field uh, where we are making materials that respond to stimuli in the environment. So either light or heat, um, and they predictably fold. And then we'll jump into the students, but a little bit about the conference itself. This is what they're going to in a couple days, Yeah, right? so they're going to a conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, that is the Emerging Frontiers in Research Conference. Uh, it'll be a lot of graduate students and also... Um, our high school students there presenting their posters. Well, let's talk to the students here then. Uh, so, Michael Mira Evans, uh, you are a senior at North Glen High, is that correct? Correct. So, what has been your research area and what got you interested in it? From a good old high school, that's a STEM high school, and from that I've definitely been able to get involved in like the engineering process and sciences. And then my research at CU included reducing the waste from biofuel. It's called crude glycerol. And glycerol by itself is used in over a thousand different industries. So my research included extracting glycerol from crude glycerol and oligomerizing it, polymerizing it to form chains of glycerol that can be used. Can I just ask, what does it mean to polymerize something? Oh, it's to take 
like one unit of the molecule and then chain it up. Okay, good. Sometimes I have to understand the jargon here. Yeah, so fascinating. And we'll have more on the biodiesel work. Um, and Lindsay Welch, what about you? Quite a different research field, right? Yes, I have been 3D printing textures to go into tactile picture books for visually impaired children. And it's been rewarding to be able to um, create the textures so that they can have the same experience as children without visual impairments with um, learning to read in picture books. Well, so these are textures made from polymers, and this is related to ocean, ocean textures. So, for instance, what, what were some of the cooler ones that you helped design? I've been working on fish scales and uh, sand. Wow, and how do you make something like a fish scale? I 3D model what I think will feel like a fish scale. And then I 3D printed several different sizes of that design. And then I um, gave them all different treatments to smooth them off in different ways so that I could see which one actually felt the most like fish scales. Wow. And did it take a lot of iterations? Like you try one and you're like, oh, no, that's not quite like the fish I'm feeling now. <laughs> yeah. I actually printed off um, 25 wow. of the samples. I guess that's where 3D printing comes in really handy. You can just do it again and again and again, right? So you get yeah. just the right feel, the right model that you want. So, uh, Tycho, for you, what have you, what have you learned about, say, science and engineering that perhaps you didn't expect from this experience? What I didn't really expect was like how much waiting would be involved in the whole scientific process. You have to set an experiment to a side and then go do some other research on the side. And I wasn't really expecting that. I thought we would just be doing experiments after experiments, one after the another. Because some of these things, waiting for something to finish or waiting for a 3D print or something, there's a little bit of downtime sometimes. Okay. <laughs> and But you find other things maybe to fill that up? Yeah, definitely. Like other research to to look at to see if we can improve on different experiments if they failed and little a little other downtime activities. What did you find most fun about it? the opportunity to be able to make an influence on the world through my research and how a small high school student can make that much of an impact on the world. And what impact do you expect to have? Ultimately, eliminating biofuel waste to improve the environment. And, and Lindsay, what did you find most surprising? I found most surprising that I had to print off so many different textures just to find the right one. Yeah, and I'm curious for both of you, um, maybe Tycho first, the work you've done. I mean, it's really unusual and special for high school students to have that, that chance and that ability. How has it informed what you think you might want to do in the future? And you're a senior, so you're at a critical moment now, right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Through this research, definitely, I've definitely found joy in the whole scientific process. So my plans for the future is to become a bioengineer. Working with, what, tissue development? Yeah, or? yeah building tissue Basically building tissue, yeah. Hot, hot field. Well, good luck. And Thank you. Lindsay, how about you? You're a sophomore. Not that we're making the decision now necessarily, but what, what has it done to inform you? It has given me a lot of experience with 3D printers, and um, I'm hoping to go into mechanical or aerospace engineering. That's great. Kat, just from your experience in overseeing, how long have you worked on this uh, with this project? Yeah, I've been working with CU Science Discovery for about three years now, and um, this is the second year of this program. We have another year coming up this summer. 
Um, and the students have just been all wonderful, and uh, it's wonderful to see them grow and, and uh, be comfortable on the CU campus. How do the students get involved? Uh, we ask their science teachers to nominate them for this position. Um, it is a paid position over the summer, so it's instead of getting a summer job. And um, No, it is a summer it job. It is a summer job, exactly. <laughs> a real instead paid of getting position. A, yeah, a real paid position um, for summer. And uh, so it really helps, helps them uh, come to campus, and they really get immersed in, in everything we have to offer. Do you have any takeaway for the parents or other high school children out there who are going, hmm, this sounds interesting? Yeah, we do have um, we do have some other internship programs on campus. Um, other than the REM program, we offer uh, high school research experiences in the summer and um, also high school academies. And one more, where can people go to find more info? Yeah, sciencediscovery.colorado.edu. The students, you get to have the last word here. So... Tycho, uh, do you have any takeaway, anything you want to tell to the other students about your experience? It's it's exciting, and I would I would advise it for anyone to do it. Go out and, and make a difference in the world. You can. And Lindsay, you still have a few years to go here, too. You know, what's your takeaway from it? Just being able to make a difference in the world, it really helps you in life to have a good life. Well, thank you all three of you. Tycho Mara Evans, Lindsay Welch, and Catherine Penscover, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank, thank you, you so much, Susan. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. While we be boating full time, you floating under the sea. <laughs> Down here, all the fish is happy as after the waves they roll. The fish on the land is happy. They shot because they in the boat. But fish in the boat. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. I know it's not even 9 o'clock yet, but it's time for some erotica. Well, actually, that is the sex lives of gender-bending fish, kinky squid, desperately virgin elephant seals, and other creatures of the sea. Little has been known until fairly recently about the intricate sex lives of many fish and marine mammals. Our next guest, marine ecologist Mara Hart, has been studying how these creatures do it. Yes, someone's got to do it. And her new book called Sex in the Sea reveals many tales that'll make you laugh and maybe even blush. But it's not just voyeurism that propels Dr. Hart, who also works for the nonprofit Future of Fish. In her book, she shows how sex in the sea is deeply connected to healthy and sustainable oceans. And the oceans, along with their inhabitants, are under many threats, including overfishing and climate change. Dr. Hart will speak tonight about her book at the Boulder Bookstore at 7.30. And she joins us in the studio from our home in Boulder. Welcome to the show, Mara. Thanks for having me. So I was looking at the many reviews of your book, and one said, Sex in the City can't hold a candle to Mara Hart's saucy and scholarly Sex in the Sea. 
really? Is it that sassy under there? Oh my goodness, it <laughs> is. You know, there. when you look out at the ocean, you can imagine that somebody out there is doing it in some acrobatic or pretty kinky way every moment of every day all year long. Okay, so does it make you want to swim in the ocean a little more or less? <laughs> well, it, it kind of depends, I guess, on, on what you go for. But uh, the ocean's a pretty big place. So the truth is that very few animals are... Um, we, it's hard to see them. It's hard to find these acts and actually see what they're doing when they're under there. So if you actually get to encounter some animals having sex in the sea, I'd consider you pretty lucky. <laughs> and let's start with one of my favorite sea creatures, which is the little seahorse. You call the males dutiful dads, and not just because they're mostly monogamous, it appears, but that they can and do become pregnant and carry the babies to term. Yes, Talk the, about that. Yeah, so seahorse males are the only pregnant males that we know in the animal kingdom, and they go through this really beautiful courtship where they um, woo the female and try to convince her that they are the one to carry her very precious eggs. And they often will do this by sort of flexing and moving so that they can show off their pouch. And so a seahorse has this, a seahorse male has a pouch on his... Kind of marsupial-like. Yeah, kind of, except it's, it's sort of a vertical slit, if you imagine, right in his stomach. And he will fold and bend to kind of fill it with water and puff it out so that the female can sort of say, oh, okay, that's, that's a nice size. And then the female actually has what's called an ovipositor and it's a little stub that protrudes from her belly and that is where she transfers the eggs into the male's pouch and as soon as the eggs are transferred he closes the pouch and seals it and then he incubates those eggs he fertilizes them in the pouch surrounds them with a fluid that helps keep them well nurtured just like we would think of in a pregnancy and then after a couple of a uh, couple of days normally they uh, kind of come out as tiny little miniature seahorses. I like this model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a couple of years ago, I interviewed someone who wrote the book, Do Fathers Matter? Mm. And here's an example. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For seahorses, the, the dads really go through, through all the labor, though it doesn't seem quite as taxing because... After they give this live birth, within about three hours, they can be back seducing the female to go again. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many different tales of sort of gender bending, like hermaphrodites, we might call transgenders. And one of them is this tiny, I didn't even know the name before, slipper shell snail. What's the evolutionary significance of this and what, what is it? What does it do? So hermaphrodism can come in handy in many different uh Situation. So hermaphrodites, where they have both male and female parts, works really well if you are in an environment where you don't have a lot of different mating options. So whoever you encounter, you could mate with, whether they're male or female, because everybody has both your bets. parts. You can hedge your bets. Now, with the slipper shell, what's really interesting is they do this thing called sequential hermaphrodism. So the females are often the ones who first arrive. So if they land, a slipper shell will attach to the bottom of the seafloor and kind of stick there. And when the, they first land, they'll decide to become grow big and become a female. And that's because they can then release lots and lots of eggs. The bigger they are, the more eggs they carry. So mm -hmm. that's something that's really different than mammals, right? So if women are born with all the eggs we'll ever have, and that number goes a down. A shame, I will say. Yeah. So uh, with, with snails and fish, the bigger the female, the more eggs she can carry. So these big slipper shells will land and grow big and be females, and then they'll attract smaller males. They'll attract other baby slipper shells to land on their backs 
build these giant towers and then have them, by releasing pheromones, stay male. And so they will then start to fertilize all of her eggs. So it's a way that she kind of grows these little um, love slave towers, if you think of it that way, (laughs) where the males can fertilize her eggs by sort of reaching down from their position and um, depositing the sperm onto her where when she needs it. Fascinating. And speaking of sex and parenting, um, you write a lot about these technological advances, particularly in tagging and not just tagging, but genetics in general. Mm. Um, Tell us, well, and that they can tell us about paternity. The maternity, for yes. that matter. What, what's the significance of that and what, what's an example? So again, um, we it's really hard to see some of these animals actually uh, in the field doing what they do in their intimate lives. But for if you take uh, sharks, so we know that many sharks, the female tends to mate with multiple males. But what we found by doing paternity tests and, and maternity tests on sharks and their offspring is that oftentimes only one or a handful of the males are actually fertilizing the eggs and producing that next generation. So even though it looks like the female is very promiscuous and she is in the sense of having multiple mating events, something else is going on uh, in terms of the screening of those sperm or the ability of the female to perhaps do some even selecting so that her offspring are covered by just a few of the males, which is really interesting. Fascinating. There's so many tales here. Um, Just time for another one. So you, I mean, there's so many tantalizing tales here. (laughs) But you are also making a broader connection, as you alluded to in the beginning. So what is the connection between sort of sex in the sea and sea health? Well, again, ultimately, when you think about it, sex is the heart of sustainability. Sex is what drives the diversity of the ocean, which provides all the different medicinal resources and species that we depend upon for food and and other kinds of uh, benefits. And sex also drives abundance, right? It is reproduction. It's what produces Mm -hmm. all of that bounty that we rely on from the oceans. So we need these animals to be able to do sex in the way that they do. And uh, sometimes because it's done so differently than how we do it, we we can have some trouble trying to figure out how to manage them properly. And if there's one takeaway you want listeners to have? Sex-friendly seafood. So that means eat low on the seafood chain. So eat your clams and mussels and oysters and seaweed and sardines and mackerels. All those animals have abundant, abundant sex and can be very well managed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Mara Hart. She's the author of the new book, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connections with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep. Come hear a book talk tonight at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. And for more information on ocean conservation issues and how you can get involved here in landlocked Colorado, check out the nonprofit Colorado Ocean Coalition. It's at coloradoocean.org. That's all for this edition of Hell on Earth. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Michael Brecker and from the soundtrack of The Little Mermaid. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>